The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. We are a sacred troop edition. It's Wednesday, March 21st, 2018, and on today's show, The Death of Stalin, a new film from Veep and In the Loop creator Armando Iannucci about the power struggles in the aftermath of the dictator's death in Soviet Russia. Then Rise, a.k.a. Friday Night Musical. An NBC drama from Jason Kadams, showrunner of Friday Night Lights, and Hamilton producer Jeffrey Seller about a high school theater program in a working class town and the resistance the high school drama director encounters along the way. And finally, we chat about Twitter metrics and what it's like not to look at them thanks to a relatively new web extension called The Demetricator, made by Ben Grosser. I'm joined, as always, by Slate's film critic Dana Stevens. Hello, Good Dana. Good morning, Julia. And filling in for a vacationing Stephen Metcalf, who sent us a very jolly email from London in the middle of the night last night. I don't know if you got the name. Oh, Dana. yeah. He was praising the muse. He's enjoying the muse of the city. He's muse bound. Uh, and we are joined by Slate Plus editorial director and the host of Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting podcast, Gabriel Roth. Hi. Hi. I never get to be on the show with you because you often sub for me. Uh, yes, I'm thrilled to be here with you. Likewise. Hopefully our banter can live up to this hype. All right. Let's get to it. The Death of Stalin is the latest film from Armando Iannucci, the British comedian and director responsible for Veep, In the Loop, and I'm Alan Partridge. His newest film is a political farce about the immediate aftermath of Stalin's death in Soviet Russia in 1953. Based on the French graphic novel whose name I will make Dana pronounce, La Mort de Staline, it stars Steve Buscemi, Michael Palin, and Jeffrey Tambor, among others. Before we dig in here, let's start by listening to a clip uh, what you'll hear here is the discussion among Stalin's uh, successors during his funeral. Ask Barry if he invited the bishops. Don't give me orders. Ask Barry if he invited the bishops. Did you invite the bishops? Yes. Yes. Well? He said yes. I'm going to give everyone in Red Square a voucher permitting one kick each a stupid face. Is he asking for some delicious hay? No, he said something quite complicated about a voucher system. Ask Nikita, why in God's ass he invited the bishops? No, it, I, I've already explained Ask why. Nikita. You tell him. Never mind. Swap. No. Just swap with me. I said no. We can make it look like it's part of the ceremony. Dana, I have not had the pleasure of reading your review because you have not reviewed this film. No, I think Sam Adams reviewed this one for Slate. Yes, and and uh, back when it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival, too. So I'm dying to know, as our film critic, what did you make of it? Oh, man, it's so there's so much to say about this movie. It's so rich. I mean, basically, I would say that I loved it, but the love takes more the form of a sort of odd admiration that Iannucci pulls off a comedy this dark. Like Anthony, Anthony Lane says something perfect about this, that the humor is so dark, it's like it was dredged up from the ground. I mean, this this movie does have that feeling, like... The currents of political rage and despair are so deep, and yet it is funny, but obviously a different kind of funny than the sort of laugh-a-minute rhythm of Veep. So I want to get into into that and whether you guys agree, but I think it's it's a kind of brilliant achievement. Uh, Gabe, in addition to being our third today, you are also someone who was raised steeped in bleak British humor. It's true. 
this movie is also steeped in a bleak British humor version of bleak Russia. Right in my wheelhouse. What'd you make of it? I, it's great. As Dana said, it's a great movie. The The first 15 minutes are so profoundly violent and dark and give such an unvarnished and, in fact, maybe comically exaggerated or, or, or emphasized version of the horrors of Soviet totalitarianism that it was sort of impossible for me to imagine that this was going to be a successful comedy. I, I sort of felt myself shifting my expectations to, like, is this going to be a political horror movie with a, with a comic sheen on the surface? surface. After those first 15 minutes, there's not quite as many people getting murdered or tortured right in front of you. And so it's possible to relax a little bit into the humor of the movie. But yeah, dark as heck. Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost like it's hard to describe, but it's really built into the architecture of the movie, right? The, the darkness and the horror. So it's not a question of this is a bleak story with a comic sheen upon it. It's more like it's that image of something gushing from a very deep place, you know, that contains like both humor and despair, which is an incredibly hard thing to take on as a filmmaker Gabe, and as, an actor. As you described, shifting in your chair, y- your body like went taut and I, and it made me realize that my experience of that same first 20 minutes of the movie, I could describe as clenched. Like the whole movie makes you physically uncomfortable and then it ends and you're like, that was brilliant. It's it's a deeply unsettling experience because there's kind of like a it's like a busby berkeley uh dictatorship a little bit at the beginning like people are whisked off to get shot and then it's another scene of people getting torn from their loved ones and then another scene in the dungeons and it's all kind of briskly paced and a little bit jolly and you're like what the what is this like what am i doing in this theater should i even be here this feels wrong um, and then that feeling wrongness actually comes to feel like the whole point. The, the theme, I think, of a lot of Yanucci's political comedy from, from the thick of it through Veep up to this movie is, is the way in which people who run institutions, people who run governments, people at what we think of as the pinnacle of power are just as short-sighted and narrow-minded and reactive and foolish as anybody else. Anybody who's ever worked in an office knows the experience of just sort of lurching from crisis to crisis and desperately trying to respond to things and kind of flailing around. And most of our work is not so consequential that that becomes absurd. But when you put that in the halls of government, then it becomes absurd. And when you put that in the halls of a totalitarian murder government, then it becomes bleakly absurd. The, the, the people who are making these catastrophic life and death decisions for ordinary Soviet citizens uh, are making them on the basis of just the most short-sighted and stupid and impulsive and instinctive and sadistic and petty little grievances and gripes. Uh, and there is comedy there. But as we've said, it's it's bleak comedy. Well, right. And the thick of it and in the loop are supposed to be showing the craven personal idiocy that animated, you know, the sober, centrist, yet Iraq war-supporting government of a Tony Blair type uh, and sort of pulls the veil off the idea that the people who run things actually know what the hell is going on. And this is like a flip side version of that, which is that even a centralized power that does not have a sheen of centrist technocratic, uh, this is the, the modern cosmopolitan universe, they're the, even if they're this evil, it's from the same well of of craven personal 
ESC. Which is a very, I mean, I just, again, just think it's such a brave and strange project to take on as an English filmmaker. You can tell in that clip that we just heard that there's this very heterogeneous approach to accents, for example, right? Steve Buscemi talks with his regular Brooklyn accent that we're used to. The Brits all have different accents from different areas. No one's trying to sound Russian. Even the lettering on signs is just sort of vaguely Cyrillic style English. And all of those choices to me seem to be Iannucci's way of gesturing at making a movie that's transcultural or transhistorical. I mean, a lot of the events in this movie are true. They, they, a lot of this stuff really happened, even if maybe not in this order, and it might be somewhat compressed into all being centered around the story of Stalin's death. So in that sense, it's historically accurate, but Iannucci doesn't seem particularly interested in either recreating things exactly as they were or recasting it as some sort of allegory for something else. He, for example, has specifically said this is not supposed to be about Trump and was made to be a, a sort of historical narrative that isn't anchored in the present day. But it's impossible to watch these foolish narcissists juggling for power in the in the vacuum created by Stalin's death and not think about what's currently happening. No, and the combination of a bunch of craven idiots and uh, like the darkest possible iterations of Russia, even if those are different forces acting on our international stage at the moment, like the way they marry in this film contributes to the unease and the sense of like uh, the dire state of the human condition and organized government generally. I mean, you sort of watch it and you think, well, okay, so Trump is really bad and his administration seems a lot like these people, but also there aren't gulags yet. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not, we haven't quite reached 1953 Soviet Russia levels. And then you're like, well, you watch a scene of, of you know, the security forces rounding up people from their homes in the night and and husbands and wives being parted. And then it's impossible not to think about ICE and what's happening to the least powerful people um, in or touched by American society right now. And yeah, it's not 1953 Soviet Russia, but it's not uh, it's 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 on a spectrum. Yeah. And and that's terrifying. Yeah. There, there's one element that does feel very specific to the USSR, which is the element of Soviet ideology as a thing that everyone has to pay some kind of fealty to in a way that in the movie, it's not always possible to tell if someone is being sincere when they praise Stalin and, and as a great man and a great leader, even though he dragged their wife off to the gulag and kept her there for 20 years. Uh, or if they're just so terrified of the fact that every room might be bugged and the secret police could be listening to them. Um, the scene in which the father is taken away from his son, we see the son informing on the father to the soldiers. He sort of he points up the stairs. He's up there because he knows that that's what he has to do to survive or because he thinks that's what he's supposed to do as a comrade of the Soviet Union or whatever. Um, it, it, that's an element that we don't quite have a parallel for that kind of totalitarian ideology today yet. And he really, Yanuchi really gestures at the madness of that. I think the way that 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 kind of ideology can seep deep into your soul, so that you almost you you have no idea anymore whether you're saying something because of the fear of reprisals or because you really believe it. Such that one of the people, a woman who's being released from a gulag, praises Stalin for releasing her, even though he's the guy who put her there in the first place. One other thing that's remarkable about the movie is how many of the incidents in it are true or have grounding in reality. They didn't happen in this order with this exact set of people at this exact moment in history, but like basically every outlandish, the the five or six most 
outlandish incidents, and I won't describe exactly what they are because I don't want to spoil them. Some version of them all happened in this mind-boggling way. And the other thing, which I am uh, will will admit, though I'm not proud of it, um, is that the most astonishing performance in the movie, I think, is the, the performance of Simon Russell Beale, who I guess is a, a beloved and, and distinguished British theater actor, but not someone who I recognized. Um, I didn't really know anything about Laurenti Beria. He's, he is erased by history, um, despite having been a quite consequential player. Um, and, you know, there's other characters depicted in the film are Khrushchev and Molotov and people who you, uh, who history remembers more clearly or at least more clearly now. And coming out of the film and looking up what actually happened and realizing how much of it is grounded in reality and that this entire figure is someone to reckon with and understand also makes you think about the various players on the stage today and which of them are hugely consequential and will be remembered and which of them are hugely hugely consequential and will not. There's an interesting choice with the casting where Barry, the head of Stalin's secret police and the sort of Machiavellian demonic schemer, is played by Simon Russell Beale as this incredibly capable, like talented mastermind. And and Khrushchev is played by Steve Buscemi, who, as always with Steve Buscemi, it's impossible not to see him as a loser. Right. He as you're watching him, you're like, oh, this is yet another hapless guy who's about to get pummeled by the forces of history. Uh, and of course, as we know, Khrushchev went on to succeed Stalin as the head of the general committee. And Beria, as you may or may not know before the movie, did not meet such a successful outcome. Um, and yet watching this hopeless schlub sort of flailingly improvise his way around this very seductive and scheming and, and uh, intelligent and cunning um, plotter. Um, it, it, it's You watch it happen in front of you and it's hard quite to understand how it's happening as it happens. Well, and it also cuts against something we've seen in other Iannucci pieces, which is they're there's usually a few people who are more competent than the other people, but there's rarely like the crack guy who's got it all figured out uh, in the way that Barry's character does in this film. But of course, as you discover over the course of the movie, right, having it all figured out doesn't necessarily serve you well. Sometimes it's the bumbler who, by some series of accidents and scheming and coincidence, manages to rise to the top. Something we haven't really mentioned that I think hugely contributes to the success of this movie is, I mean, I guess you would call it to be pretentious, the mise-en-scene, like what happens where in the frame is often where the humor or the horror comes from. And I'm just thinking of this scene, I think it's repeated a couple of times, where there's almost a West Wing-style walk-and-talk, but through, you know, the bowels of some horrible prison where awful things are going on in every room. And you don't know the stories of all these rooms, but you just sort of pass them. And I'm just thinking of a moment when two characters are rounding a corner in one of those dungeon jails and a and a body comes rolling down the stairs, like someone has just been pushed down a flight of stairs, but the camera just sort of sees it in the background as they turn the corner. And this movie is so full of things like that. It's like Easter eggs of horror everywhere you look. Yeah, there's a lot of random incidental murders. All right. I think our collective recommendation would be go see Death of Stalin. It will unsettle you, but you will be glad you did. Yeah, it Absolutely. takes a strong stomach, but it's it's really worth it. Absolutely. If you've seen the film, please come to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you thought. Before we move on to Rise, let's do the business. Dana, what do you have? 
Well, first of all, I wanted to start by doing something I wish I had done at the live show last week, which is just sincerely thank everyone who came out to the live show and everyone who listened to the live show and all the wonderful listeners who've written us notes since about what the show has meant to them over the last 10 years. It is just overwhelming to even thank you all individually. I do want to get back to all of those emails eventually, but it's really, really been a complete pleasure to do the show, to celebrate the show, and to hear that it's meant something to all of you. So thanks. You just committed to writing a lot of emails. (laughs) We also want to tell you about another Slate show, Mom and Dad are Fighting. Gabe, you can tell us about Mom and Dad are Fighting because... I can tell you about Mom and Dad are Fighting. I am one of the three hosts of Mom and Dad are Fighting, along with Rebecca Lavoie and Carvel Wallace. The three of us talk about parenting every week. We take questions from listeners. We try our best to give advice. We bring on experts to help when we are unable to answer the questions. Uh, we share our parenting triumphs and fails, stories of the successes and, and catastrophes that uh, happen in the everyday uh, world of parenting. Uh, we've been building a great community on our uh, Facebook group, the Slate Parenting Facebook group, where we've been talking to parents around the country and around the world. Uh, it's really a, a fun show to do, and I hope it's a fun show to listen to. If you are a parent or if you are interested in parenting, check it out. Mom and Dad are fighting. You can find it wherever you find this podcast. I mean, for my own plug, I just, I've always loved this about Mom and Dad are fighting since Dan Coyce and Alan, Allison Benedict started it, is that it's the least preachy and most honest and unglamorizing view of parenting. There is nothing particularly glamorous about parenting. Um, yeah. And um, now that we have Carvel and, and Rebecca on the show, they bring different perspectives. But I think we're continuing in the Dan and Allison tradition of trying not to bullshit you. Oh, yeah. Those are big shoes to fill, but y'all are doing it. So Appreciate it. Mom and dad are fighting wherever you get your podcasts. Gabe, as the editorial director of Slate Plus, I'm going to ask you to do the heavy lifting on what is our Slate Plus today. Actually, I'm not even completely up to date on what are we doing for Slate Plus on today's show? Today on Slate Plus, we're going to be talking about our favorite pizza toppings. If you're a Plus member, you wouldn't be hearing this, but Plus members have been hearing Steve and Julia and Dana talk about their personality quirks, their individual preferences. They've argued about mayonnaise in an impassioned way. Uh, and Slate Plus Culture Gab Fest fans often say that those segments are some of the sparkiest and most intimate on the show. If you are a fan of this show and you're not yet a member of uh, Slate Plus, it's time for you to sign up to hear about our favorite pizza toppings and so much more. Uh, to get that segment and another every week, uh, go to slate.com slash culture plus for just $35 for your first year. Uh, you help us make the show and in return you get extended ad-free versions of this and your other favorite slate shows so if you're not yet a member slate.com slash culture plus all right thanks gabe back to the show next up we're discussing rise the new nbc drama from jason Kadams, late of friday night lights before we begin Let's uh, listen to a clip from this show. In it, we'll hear Josh Radner, the actor who plays Lou Mazzucchelli, a uninspiring English teacher who gets the notion to propose himself to the principal as the new director of the theater department because, as he tells his wife in a later scene, he needs this. Let's hear him discussing with Tracy, played by Rosie Perez, uh, his promotion and what that means for her. Look, I'm, I'm sorry about the way this is all happening, but I, I, I'd like you to consider continuing on as assistant Where's director. Where's this information coming from? From Principal Ward. Look, I, I have ideas. Change things up. Make this program into something special. 
It is something special. Yeah, uh, of course it is. But look, there have been three productions of Grease in the last decade. Do we really need another it's one? It's a great show, and I planned to put my spin on it. It is, and no doubt you would. But look, I was thinking, what, what, what if we did something out of the box, like, like Rent or Hair or, or Spring Awakening? May I ask what you have directed? Honestly, not that much. Well, you must have some great credits to steal this job from me, so please tell me. Fiddler on the Roof. Lake Susquehannock Summer Camp. Junior Division, 1994. Well, I could see that your work at Lake Shoot My Hammock trumps my 11 years of giving my blood, sweat, and tears to this program. What is Ward paying you? Look, I don't think that's... I'll find out. I find out everything. 2000 for the year. I was getting poor. Now that explains a ton, doesn't it? Um, I had trouble listening to that clip without grimacing in a way that caused Gabe to laugh. Um, this show is ludicrous. I'm sorry, I'm just going to open with my view. This show is ludicrous. What did you guys think? All I can say is it was your idea. (laughs) (laughs) This show augured so ill from the beginning. And now I'm afraid that my, my enthusiasm to watch Friday Night Lights, which I've been wanting to do for years now, has been dampened because the Friday Night Lights guy made such a bad pilot for a new show. Okay, the contrast is really interesting because Friday Night Lights is obviously the completely successful version of this, right? It's a show about high school that exists to give you warm, moving emotions and it succeeds 100%. Whereas Rise is a show about high school that exists to give you warm, moving emotions that basically is absurd. It's basically a ridiculous thing. It's ridiculous because it's about high school theater and high school theater is ridiculous. And the sh- high school theater is wonderful. I love high school theater. But couldn't there be a great show about high there school theater? There could be a wonderful I mean, show about high school theater. I mean, there was just Glee. I mean, I know Glee isn't everybody's cup of, cup of tea and neither is Ryan Murphy. But, like, there literally was just a massive, like, network drama about the inspirational potential of theater in the modern world. Glee was not a show that I loved, but Glee at least understood that high school theater is essentially kind of hilarious and ridiculous. Whereas the problem for Rise is that it needs you to take high school theater 100% seriously. And I am just not part of the set of people that can do that. And so this is not a show that is going to be for me. I do not think that is the problem with it. I think that is a problem with it. But Friday Night Lights, you might argue, asked you to take high school football in Texas almost as seriously as uh, Rise asks you to take theater and... I, I will say that watching this show, I had a brief moment of, of quality vertigo of being like, oh, my God, was Friday Night Lights horrible? But I just didn't know because it was about Texas and football and worlds that I'm not familiar with. And was I like, was it as ludicrous about small town Texas as this show is about kind of the creative side of high school? And then I quickly realized, no, it's not like Friday Night Lights succeeded in part because of the charisma of its adult leads, uh, Kyle Chandler and Connie Britton. And we can talk about Josh Radner's particular qualities as an actor and the particular failings of this role as written in a moment. Um, But also because it was really humanist. Like it really was sincerely interested in the travails and problems of every single person, adult and teen in that town in a way that was so sincere and somehow not miserably cloying, and I don't really know how it succeeded at the latter piece. I'm contradicting my prior self here a little bit, but it did. if it didn't actually itself have much distance on football, it gave you fully realized 
viewpoints from people who thought football was great and people who thought football was stupid and a waste of time. Like it gave you a chorus of viewpoints. Um, And this show just wastes its time on Ted, what what is his name? Mazzucchelli? Lou Mazzucchelli? Like, oh my God. I mean, you can hear it. It's the flaws right there in the setup. You can hear it in the clip we just listened to. And Rosie Perez gives a great performance as Tracy, the ousted director. And you're like, what the fuck is Lou Mazzucchelli's problem that he, you're basically asked to believe that like a middle-aged sad sack white guy who's like a little gloomy. It's like incomprehensible that that would be the baseline structure of a show that then wants you to take seriously all these plots about thwarted gay youth coming out of the closet and transgender dressing rooms and like... It it aspires to be a very woke in 2018 show, and yet the fundamental base asks you to root for this like self-absorbed guy who well, elbowed Rosie Perez out of the way. I was going to say, to me, the fundamental ouster of Rosie Perez by the Josh Radner character gives the entire show this sort of non-ethical <laughs> foundation to rest on. I mean, the whole pilot is about... Josh Radner jockeying for her job. Essentially, she doesn't appear to have been doing her job badly or been be on anyone's bad list at the school. And she soon becomes his partner putting on the play and seems just as motivated to do it as him. And it's really not clear why he revitalized the entire theater department by just kind of joining forces with an already good teacher who was there. The comparison to Friday Night Lights sets up a kind of social framing where Friday Night Lights was about red America, and it was mostly appreciated by blue America, right? Friday Night Lights was a show about Texas high school football, a culture that's alien, I think, to me and to most of us here in Brooklyn, New York. Wait, I went to a school school that sounds exactly like that school, which is one reason I want to see it so much, just a big public football-centric high school. Sure, and and the work that the show did was to make me, someone who doesn't have that experience and, and thinks of it as fairly alien, makes me really understand the richness of these characters and the ways in which these things matter to them. And it, it it bridged a divide in what felt like a powerful, meaningful way. And Rise seems to be trying to do the same thing backwards, that like, here is this kind of sappy, liberal English teacher, theater director guy who wants to put on this Spring Awakening about Germany and abortion and I have to say Spring Awakening love. sounds kind of cool from the, the songs that you hear, though. I Did other of you guys see that show? I did not. I didn't either. And yeah, the music in this show is lovely. And you get to hear it in these very stripped down arrangements with just the students and the piano. And when they need to use the music to give a lift to a big emotional moment in the show, I, it, I didn't not have chills. Like, it didn't not bring tears to my eyes. And yet the the... The setup of like, here's this guy and he's going to do a musical and it's going to make these people in this dispossessed steel town really come together and understand their plight. Um, There's a headline from The Onion from right after the election. It's impossible not to think of the headline, Democratic Party aiming to reconnect with working class Americans with new Hamilton inspired Lena Dunham web series. (laughs) (laughs) This is that show. Well, it makes a lot of mistakes in terms of simply making the kids credible performers at a high school. They all seem way too polished. The rehearsals already seem like, you know, something from the very end of fame after they've already had four years at the performing arts high school. And in general, just the the level of quality of the production seems to be so high from the, the first rehearsal that there isn't any sense that there's anywhere to go. One of the arguments for why there would still be room for a sincere and gooey hearted 
high school musical primetime drama in, well, I don't know, however many years after Glee went off the air, but not more than five, is that Glee's musical numbers were ludicrously polished and clearly took place in this fantastical technicolor world of the minds of how great and ambitious the students were and the extreme, like, muddy realism of the Friday Night Lights approach and the melancholy and specificity of it. I mean, I suppose that probably the high school football scenes were a little more, you know, exciting and raucous and uh, basham than an average middling football game. But you could imagine there being real interest in pathos and like showing that arc and taking a realist approach to putting together a high school musical. And it, 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 it doesn't quite hit that mark. Although, as Gabe says, some of the songs are really lovely. Okay, cards on the table. The, the pilot has a big climax at the end, as you would expect, right? I, there, well, there's a clip that we could maybe hear where um, the Josh Radner character is forced to step down from his role in the musical. And, and I don't think I will be surprising or spoiling anybody's experience if I, if I say that that doesn't last. Yeah, I had this vision that uh, theater at Stanton High School could be different. And I, I believe it can be. I believe in all of you. But I needed to do it in baby steps. I, I, I needed to play nice one step at a time. And as you all know, I, I didn't take it one step at a time. It was my mistake. Live and learn. But you've all brought me so much the last few weeks. I don't, I don't think I'll ever be the same. I really don't. So the show will be Pirates of Penzance. Miss Wolf will be your esteemed director. And I will be there in the front row at opening night, cheering you all on. But the climax is the way in which he is brought back to that position. It, 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 the students are singing this song a cappella while they're doing something very visually striking and dramatic that's also striking a blow for justice as defined by the world of the show. And that would get them kicked out of school immediately sure, if they did some, in real life. something profoundly rebellious and passionate and full of the vigor of youth. And there's this beautiful music and, and they're also being affectionate to one another and sort of winningly friendly with the trans students who's part of their troupe. And um, did you guys, were you able to watch that coldly and, and with your critical faculties intact or, or did you feel some emotional stirrings there? I, I felt nothing precisely because of the utter unrealism of the thing that they're doing at the same time. I guess I won't spoil it if you want to watch the pilot, but they essentially destroy school property in order to protest their their drama teacher being ousted from his position. And uh and the fact that, that 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 makes the administration cave, I mean, all I could do was want to consult the bylaws at every school I could think of and see what would happen if such well, an event were to that's occur. that's not what makes the administration cave. What is? The football star threatens to quit the football team. Oh, yeah, you're right. Right, right, right. That's yeah. all just ornament property <laughs> destruction. Right. The football star is the leverage. <laughs> In any case, you could watch that and, and, and unmoved, dry-eyed. I mean, I'm... I'm a pretty sappy mark for things like this. But, yeah, I made it through this entire pilot without a stirring of genuine emotion, except at some of the songs. The songs are lovely. I watched a couple episodes and, yeah, it's moving. Like, I'm not saying I wouldn't, like, binge it on a plane sometime if I had unlimited time to watch TV, almost because 
the Josh Radner character is like compellingly hateable in a way. Like it's it's so it's kind of fascinatingly ill conceived. And I really liked How I Met Your Mother, the the long running sitcom that he was the star of, which sort of recognized his quality of being like an unctuous shit and like <laughs> played it up. And it was he was teased about it by his friends as opposed to treating it like very soberly and grandly, which this show ridiculously does. But it's like kind of fascinating to watch the show put its feet so wrong in its assumptions about what you think about this guy. And we should mention here before we adjourn that Rise is based on a nonfiction story about a real drama teacher named Lou Volpe, who was gay and in the closet at the time of the proceedings. So there was already some hue and cry about the fact that this closeted gay character had been replaced with a, you know, kind of heterosexual normcore dude. And you know, you could be offended by that or not or choose to take the new adaptation on its own terms and see what it does with the role. But given that there's already going to be scrutiny on, like, who is this guy that they've invented instead of the guy that was the the heart of the subject material, then to invent just such a pompous twit, it just boggles the mind. It's it's kind of fascinating. Like, I had a little bit of a friends from college response to it of being like, I kind of I kind of want to see why this is so strange. Why would they have done these things? So I found it somewhat compelling in that way. I mean, the changing of his sexual orientation is especially galling, considering, as Gabe said, that the show so wants to be on its high horse about advancing all these agendas and casting the trans student and right and helping to out the student who's in the closet. And yet the teacher himself has to be sort of converted into this heterosexual, married, middle class guy that America can relate to somehow. All right. Are we done pummeling this thing? I think we're done. I just want to say this is a show that exists like a, in the way of a horror movie or maybe like pornography. It exists to like give you feelings in your body <laughs> and it does give those feelings. It like delivers those goods. And if that's something you're in the market for, then, you know, maybe check out Rise. Gabe is having a spring awakening right now. <laughs> I believe. I believe. <laughs> I do not believe, but I might watch a few more episodes. All right. If you have watched Rise or have thoughts about it, please come talk about them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, or at us on Twitter at at SlateCultFest. We'd be very curious to hear what you make of Lou. For our final topic today, we are going to discuss the Twitter Demetricator, which certainly you can give it points for its name uh, in making an effort to reclaim the machinery of modern times uh, for humanity. It has a very futurist machine name. This is a Chrome extension made by Ben Grosser, which, if you install it, removes and eliminates from Twitter all numbers, basically. How many people liked your tweet? How many people retweeted your tweet? How many replies you have? All of the, how many followers you have? How many followers the people who liked and replied and tweeted you have? Um, and removes the context of having accumulated. Uh, a claim or response on the platform and asks you to look at all of the information on the platform without that numerical context. Grocer several years ago made a similar product for Facebook. Uh, we played around a bit with the Twitter one and uh, are going to discuss it. You guys are both power tweeters. Not sure if you guys would 
will you will you bow to that? Well, I mean, I'll say this. I only know. I mean, I know you now because you work at Slate, but Gabriel and I kind of met over Twitter, right? It's because we were both on there wasting our lives that we ended up chatting and getting to know each other. Well, you probably kind of have your job thanks to Twitter, right? Like, you, isn't that how you got to know Dan Coyce, who's the person who recruited you to apply for the position you now hold? I think that's right. That um, there, that uh, 10 years ago or something like that, then Dana and I were among a relatively small group of people who were tweeting all the time just for fun. And, and it felt nothing like it does today. And over the past 10 years, I think we've probably both seen it get bigger, more cumbersome, more unwieldy. I remember when there were none of these numbers in the first place. You couldn't see who was faving your tweets. And then they started telling you, and then they started putting numbers, and then people started competing to do it. And then you could see the ways in which people would tweet. The the nature of the activity began to change in a direction that was obviously driven by these numbers to some extent. And it got more and more horrible. And and but is it the numbers that made it horrible? Really, I mean, I understand the the goal behind this, the creation of this Demetricator extension, but it just seems that there's something else besides people caring about how many likes and faves they get that is making Twitter be this horrible thing that's ruining politics and humanity. I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around, right? There are Russian bots and alt-right frogs and all sorts of horrible stuff. But It just seems like the false information that's being circulated. Of course, the, the numbers and caring about the numbers is part of that circulation. But it, but it just seems like the words in front of you are, are ultimately much more powerful than the little numbers counting the reactions to the words. I did find – I tried out this extension last night and I, I – did find that when you look at your Twitter feed and you don't have any of that numeric information, you can't tell if a tweet has been retweeted 127,000 times and you're like the last person ever to see this tweet and this tweet is like a big hit of Twitter today or it's a tweet that like just somebody happened to pop into your feed and and almost no one has seen this tweet. I did find that losing that kind of context um, – makes you have to engage with the content more. It makes you have to read it and come up with a response and do I think this is smart? Do I think this is funny? Is this a good point? Is this link going to be worth reading or not? I have to make those judgments myself rather than relying on the wisdom of the crowd to have my immediate uh, response to it. Um, I did find that it changed the experience for me. I did not find that it changed it. I downloaded it like a week ago and have been looking at Twitter with no numbers ever since. But the thing, I mean, so much of the change to Twitter is intrinsic to Twitter in other ways. Like, I could tell from where the tweets were situated that they were the set of tweets that were being shown to me because they were uh, tweets I, quote, might have missed, which basically means tweets that have extremely heavy engagement among the sets of people that I follow as far as I can glean what the Twitter algorithm is promoting from context clues. And so removing the context of the actual numbers didn't feel like it was really changing what I was seeing. Like I could tell that there were sort of the first couple that were kind of newsy and then there was the next five that are like the big guns. And you're like, all right, well, I sort of see why those are the big guns. I can, ex- I, I don't, which one went mega, mega vi and which one's just fledglingly vi. Sorry, those are internal slate terms for <laughs> <laughs> how viral something has gone. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. But that didn't really change my response to it. And then... In terms of the responses to my own tweets, so I, you know, I'm I'm not nearly as power Twitter a user as you guys. I would say I'm a sporadic and mediocre Twitterer, um, but I read it a ton. But 
you know, I'm same with Instagram or anything else. When you post something on there, it is totally fun to see like, oh, what's the response and who liked that and who said something funny back. And one thing that was different was not getting the immediate context on who were the people that you didn't know who had liked your stuff, like not not knowing how how big someone was on Twitter, or like how, you know, potent they were on the platform was the thing that felt the most different and and made me feel the most stupid for caring. Like, oh, I guess I'm frequently checking. Like, what a big shot. The people who interact with my tweets are. That is so deeply lame. <laughs> like, all right, lameness, self-lameness recognized. Like, that was the most useful function. On the other hand, counter-argument, like, Twitter is a useful place to meet people who do interesting, notable things. And sometimes people who do interesting, notable things have big Twitter followings. Like, it's it's not a meaningless signifier that I'm lamely paying attention to. But it's still lame. Yeah, the, the the argument that I would make for this thing, and I will continue to use it for a while, I think, the argument that I would make for it is not that it fixes Twitter or even that it necessarily improves Twitter. It's more that it estranges Twitter in a way. It forces you to notice things about yourself, like the fact that you're checking the follower counts of the people who are faving your tweets, which maybe you were happier not knowing that about yourself. But maybe it's useful to have that pointed out to you. Yeah, it's like an ugly mirror. I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit, and I think I've talked about this, of this this app Rescue Time that I got. I mainly got it because it's an internet blocker, and I, I was having problems with the one I was using. But it also has all of these metrical capacities where it will tell you exactly how you're spending every minute of your online time, if you care to know. And then you can take that and rank it in terms of what's productive and not productive. And yeah, after a week of using that, I completely changed or tried to completely change the way that I use social media because it was too ugly a mirror to look at. What were you Ooh, what'd you learn? Well, I mean, I think it overclocks it a little bit because if you leave a window open while you're not looking at it, which, you know, we all often have thousands of tabs open on our browser at once, it, I think it clocks some amount of time before you interact again. But, I mean, there was just a very sobering week where I realized, you know, about half the time I had spent online, I was on social media. And that may have meant that there was just a, a window open in the corner, but that still provides a distraction and is just, that's not something that you want to think about yourself, that you spend half of your work week on social media. So that was so daunting that I started to put new rules around the way I use social media, which I don't always adhere to. But, you know, the idea of which is to sort of coordinate off into the leisurely beginning and end of the day and have the middle be completely social media free. But but this goes to something about the Demetricator, again, that doesn't seem to get to the heart of where Twitter's poison is for me. Like where the poison is, is in the content. My danger when I go on Twitter isn't actually necessarily that I'm going to be really absorbed with what everybody's saying and thinking about me. It's more that there's too many interesting people on there. I mean, I wish I could say, oh, the poison is, you know, just Nazis and horrible people. And then, you know, it's easy to stay away. The problem is that there's too many interesting holes to fall down, right? I mean, the minute you go there, if you follow people that are interesting to you, there's an article you want to read, and there's another tab open, and there's a conversation you want to have. And it's just endless. I think what's going on here is that you are an unusually sincere Twitter user. That you have <laughs> I'm always... the Josh Radner of Twitter users. <laughs> Don't ever compare yourself to Josh Radner again, Dana. <laughs> you are the Josh Radner from How I Met Your Mother of Twitter. Uh, and, and you're engaging with the stuff itself, with the content. You're getting into conversations with people and talking to folks and making friends and reading interesting things. Um, and if that you know, is interfering with your ability to do your work and live your life, then that's a problem. But it's not the same as the slightly more sort of gamified and metricated user is a category in which I probably fall who could at one point at least have told you exactly how many faves a particular tweet of mine would have gotten. Um, 
which what why is that occupying space in my brain why am i thinking about these artificial little button presses that random people are doing to a joke that i made uh, i think it's useful to separate out two things here though so so uh, the version of Twitter that you describe as poisonous there, Dana, doesn't necessarily seem to me like the poison, like the part where you are sincerely discovering interesting information or having interesting conversations with other humans feels to me like virtuous Twitter. And maybe there's just too much of it or it's interfering with your book writing or like one's relationship with virtuous Twitter at moments of work or when you've got other things to do, I could understand would be fraught. But poison feels like an extreme word because there is a piece of Twitter that does feel poisonous to me. And this feels like the big shift in the platform that I've observed. But I'm curious for you guys' thoughts as people who are more engaged with it, which is that it used to be a place where you would talk to people. And now it is a place where you like perform for people. And so a lot of the interactions that you do with your tweets now are about, you know, there's this uh, much maligned Twitter practice of dunking where somebody tweets something stupid and then you quote tweet it and say something mean about it on top or dismissive or wry or hilarious. And then everyone likes your tweet because you have dunked on this other idiot tweeter. And no matter how well you choose your targets, there's a way in which you're not engaging the stupid tweeter and trying to enlighten them or inform them or debate them or have a sincere exchange of views with them. You're just making fun of them to your audience. I'm not sure the numbers are the thing that made that happen. Do you think they are, Gabe? I think they're I think they're a part of it. I think it's connected. I think obviously the current political situation is a big part of it and everyone is desperate to find like minded people who are on their team so that we can establish what does our team think because our team feels beleaguered and, and oppressed by the political situation and it seems important not only that we express our political outrage, but that we see our political outrage uh, reflected in the people around us and affirmed by the people around us. And so the tweets that go megavi now are the ones ones that very successfully express the opinion that Donald Trump is terrible. Uh, when, when you land a really good blow on Donald Trump on Twitter and your tweet gets picked up and circulated around among thousands and thousands of people and everyone enjoys sharing it because, yes, this is what we believe now. Um, and it feels you can understand why there's the need for that experience among a lot of people, but it also doesn't feel particularly intimate, personal, human, um, even necessary. I mean, it's sincere in the sense that everyone genuinely holds these opinions, but who are we talking to and why are we saying it and why are we enjoying affirming and repeating one another in this way? That feels more at the core of the issue and the numbers seem like a kind of symptom of that problem. Well, and not to say that we're all total secret totalitarians, but that 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 sense of performed speech against a belief system that you're trying to represent rather than inquisitive and communicative speech is like part of what you were saying was the piece of death of Stalin that's missing from America today. And, the, and that's part of what, again, we're not there, but it feels creepingly bad about the discourse to speak about the discourse. On the other hand, okay, so the technophile here, I feel like technophile Julia needs to defend the numbers a little bit. Like, we are social creatures who have always been performing our existence in response to feedback from other people. Typically, those people have been the people we were born near and live around. And so we've tailored our expressions of self in response to feedback. Do our people smiling at us? Are they waving at us? Are they friendly? Are they mean? Like, the versions of selfhood that we express are totally determined or at least influenced by the sets of feedback we get. Social media allows us to get that feedback from a much wider, different and more heterogeneous group of people 
and to get it in a numerically quantifiable way. But is that really so different than like the human condition for, I mean, ta- for time immemorial? The obvious comparison is to calories, right? We, we were born to find calories in an environment that wasn't always going to provide us with enough calories. And we evolved to be very good at acquiring calories. And now we find ourselves in a situation where lots and lots of calories are available. And there's a good side to that, which is that we're less likely to starve from not having enough calories. And if we want to, we can get a very diverse and healthful source of calories much more easily than our ancestors ever could. And yet, there are also unhealthful effects of being surrounded by so many easily available calories, especially in particularly delicious forms. Uh, and and I think of all of those Twitter numbers and, and that sense of social affirmation and social connection as something that is, you know, it's very human to want that and it's very reasonable to need it and, and it's very nice to get it. And then at a certain point and at a certain level, it's maybe not so healthy. Yeah, I would just add to that analogy, Gabe, that you have to imagine that somewhere behind the this Twitter machine and 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 all of these social media platforms that have been created is somebody who's you know handing you bag after bag of doritos and would like you to just keep on munching away right i mean we're having this discussion in the week that the cambridge analytica news has broken um and so the implications of what it means that these gigantic corporations have given us a free place to get approbation from peers and strangers uh, in exchange for us giving them all of our personal information in ways that may be manipulated and used for commercial ends that we were vaguely aware of and perhaps for political manipulation and ill that we're only beginning to comprehend. Like, we can't really have this conversation without acknowledging that the numbers and the engagement with these broader systems have those potential sinister effects. But I, if this conversation has intrigued you at all, I would suggest you download this extension and try it. It's a good, like, little awareness jog. Um and it will make you reconsider your relationship to the platform. And it's whatever you think of the platforms now. It's good to be cognizant of and aware of your relationship with them. But I I do think I stand by the fact that numbers are not the enemy, actually. Like the, the, num- the numerification of these interactions is not actually the thing. Like even in your calorie analogy. It's not the fact. It's not like knowing the numbers of the calories. That's the problem. No, the analogy. There's like a there's like an anti math, anti numerical. There's something a little bogus about that. No, the analogy doesn't extend that far. <laughs> All right. All right. Gabe's analogy demolished. <laughs> On we shall go. Well, if you have tried this or other such things, please come to Facebook.com/slash/culturefast. Sell your data and your soul, and tell us what you thought. All right. Shall we endorse? Let's do it. Dana. All right. I sort of wish Stephen was here for my endorsement this week because I feel like he would be so in my corner. I don't know if he knows of this or not. Maybe it'll be an endorsement for Stephen and he'll get into it. That would be exciting. But I am endorsing Elena Ferrante's column in The Guardian. Are you guys reading this? Are you keeping up with it? Do you remember the headline a few months ago that she was going to start writing this column? Yes, that is the last I heard about. Yeah. And so it's gone very under the radar. They're very short columns. I think there's only been four or five so far. At least that's all that I've found. And I'm not sure how often she writes it. It looks like it's only once a week at most. Um, But they're so remarkable, as you would imagine columns by as unusual a writer as Elena Ferrante might be. They're very short. They're really sort of chronicles of her everyday life, um, including there's one that reflects on her first boyfriend or the first boy that she had any experience with. Um, There's one that's about fear and the things she's afraid of, including snakes and flying. There's one about why she's tired of writing fiction and feels like she now wants to 
explore this other new form of writing, which I guess this column is part of. But they're very personal and reflective and unusual and kind of detached from current events in a way that's that's super interesting. I'm not quite sure about the translation. They're a little bit awkwardly translated, as I sometimes felt her books were, too. But maybe that's, that estrangement is within her own Italian as well. Um, but there's four or five of them now, and they're worth looking at. I also wanted to mention, and maybe this can be a co-endorsement, that the genre they most remind me of and the writer they most remind me of is Clarice Lispector, the Brazilian novelist who had a newspaper column also that went on for many years, for decades, I think. And uh, and that was a form that's pretty common in Brazil. I don't know if it is in Italy of these kind of great writers who would be asked to do kind of everyday uh, quotidian considerations for the newspaper. And uh, so if you want to read some great Clarice Lispector chronicles, chronicas they're called, um, there's a collection of them, a translated collection called The Discovery of the World. So Elena Ferrante in The Guardian and Clarice Lispector's Discovery of the World. Is Elena Ferrante pursuing... Uh, nonfiction reflections on the actual world in her continued alternate identity. You, you mean is she writing like a long form nonfiction? No, I just sort? mean like is she still Elena Ferrante who won't say who she is? Oh yeah, yeah, she's still writing under the name Elena Ferrante, and there's no biographical information about her. Which again, if Stephen and I were here, we could wave our flag high and say, "Long live her anonymity." I, don't, I hate the fact that she was outed, and I still don't. If I knew it at any point, I no longer remember her quote real name. Uh, Gabe? I am going to endorse the new album by my favorite rock band, Yola Tango. Ah. The great rock and roll band formerly of Hoboken, New Jersey, now of Manhattan, New York. Uh, They have a new album out this week, or last week, I guess it came out. Uh, It's called There's a Riot Going On. Uh, The title taken, of course, from the great 1971 record by Sly and the Family Stone. The style is not very much like Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, it, it the album the Yola Tango album consists of a series of somewhat meditative droning pieces and uh, interspersed with some shorter and catchier bits of pop songcraft. Uh, it, it is yet another in a series of really impeccably wonderful and moving albums by this great band. If you have a chance to see them live on the tour that they're about to begin, I heartily urge you to do so. Yola Tango. Man, that sounds like classic Yola Tango. Yep. Droning plus catchy pop bits. That's their uh, lane. I can hear the heart beating as one is one of my like top four maybe albums of all time. Yeah, I, I mine too, and it's my second favorite of their records. What's your first? Painful. Mm. All right, check it out. That is an all-time great band. Uh, I'm inspired by Dana to make my endorsement. She mentioned Rescue Time, which she's been using because it gives her numbers to help make her more conscious, aware, and present in the world. They're not the enemy. Uh, I have been using a similar thing for the phone called Moment. Moment is an app you can download on your phone, and it will track the amount of time you spend on your phone, how many times you pick it up during the day. Um, And if you do a slightly hinky and complicated thing where you take screenshots of your battery page once a week, it will tell you how much time you're spending on the individual apps on your phone, which allows you to think, wait, what? I spent that much time on what? Um, And I have enjoyed it and actually found it more useful than the Twitter Demetricator in creating a little distance between me and my phone and making me think about my relationship to it. It's been pretty passive. I think think I've had it on my phone for the last six months or so. Um, But I'm about to take a proper vacation and be off for a week and a half. And I think I might use it to um, take a bunch of apps that I wish I weren't spending that much time on and put them all in a folder that's like, don't touch this on vacation. Just an extra little moment of like, oh, right, 
I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to spend my rare 10 days with my family doing this bullshit. I think my calorie analogy is relevant here again. <laughs> How? These, these little traps that we have to set up. It's like, put, it's like putting something on a high shelf. These little hacks we have to do to prevent ourselves from taking advantage of this thing that capitalism is just pushing in front of us. Right. I mean, it's interesting what the assumptions of the app are. So, you know, it, it has like also little games you can do, like do a program that's going to help you use your phone less. And one of them was try to put the phone down right now and don't touch it for 30 minutes. And I was like, but I'm about to do my morning workout and get dressed and the workouts on an app. And I like to listen to a podcast while I do those two things. And I'm not going to not touch my phone for the next 30 minutes. The parts of my phone that I don't like are not the part where I use it to facilitate exercise, a good, uh, or to like inform me about the world while I am getting dressed, time that would otherwise be devoid of media and information. Like those are, I have selected those uses for my phone and I'm comfortable with them. It's more the like, I'm just checking my phone to set the alarm at night before I read and then like 38 minutes later, I'm still looking at my phone and I haven't turned to my book yet part. I'll just have a couple chips from the back. I'll just open the bag and just have a couple chips. Gabe stands by his analogy. I, I do. I liked your metaphor. I just feel like numbers are not the problem. Like in this case, this app is giving me numbers that's helping me see these patterns and perhaps take a slightly more directed approach to them. Anyway, if you would like someone or rather some set of numbers and algorithms to problematize your relationship with your phone for you, I recommend Moment. I'm just so struck by how many of us need these things right now. It seems like a moment, just a crisis in culture where people are becoming aware, I need to have some control on my info Doritos. All right, fine. Gabe's analogy one. Uh, Gabe, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. What fun. Dana, see you next time. As ever. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateCultFest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. For Dana Stevens and Gabriel Roth, I'm Julia Turner, and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.